so um, we are reading John 6, 1 to 15, and John 6, 35 to 59. So we're skipping a little bit in the middle, but Chris is covering the whole chapter, so please do open it in your phones or your real Bibles, or the leaflet also has most of it in there too. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And now just skipping down to verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. As those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he, those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard from the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father except the one who is from God, only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up by the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. 
Thank you, David. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, please uh, help us to grasp hold of what Jesus is saying and to, to hold it deeply and truly, even though it may be offensive. Help us to have um, hearts that want to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. In any romance, there is that first exciting period of attraction and fascination. She likes the way he laughs. He likes the way she winds her hair around her finger. Little things like that. But then there comes another moment, sometimes, sometime later, months or maybe years later, a moment of realization where each one begins to be aware of the things that the other does, which frankly they find distasteful. He picks his toenails and makes little mountains of them. <laughs> she snorts out loud. He talks with his mouth full. It's like a revelation, like the moment the sun comes up over a quagmire. And at that moment, each is faced with a decision, do I really want to keep going with this or should I walk away? Now, when it comes to people following Jesus, this is a question very rarely preached on. But Jesus asks it of us very bluntly when he says to his disciples in verse 67, we didn't read that, but he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? It's a very human question. And it's sobering for us to realize that Jesus himself asked it, and we sense his discouragement. In this chapter, he's gone from feeding the multitudes at the start of the chapter to at the end, having many disciples desert him, leaving him with just the 12 and the prospect that they too might want to leave. And it's very sobering to realize that Jesus had to come to terms with failure in ministry, in worldly terms. And it wasn't easy. Well, the thing that brought him to that point was his teaching, and we did hear this, that if we want eternal life, we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Because, says Jesus, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Ooh. Now, most of us balk at eating raw meat. The thought of eating meat with blood in it would make most of our stomachs churn. But imagine if that meat was human flesh with the blood staining your mouth. Now, of course, this is doubly offensive to the Jews and frankly, too hard to swallow. Jesus was speaking in metaphor, but his point is plain enough. If we want eternal life, each of us needs to take in for ourselves Jesus' sacrifice for us. That is not just mentally assent to it, but to so embrace it, so feed on it, so ingest it, that it becomes part and parcel of who we are. The idea at its most basic essential level is that being a Christian involves loving and eating and relishing in the sacrificial flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. No wonder that the early Christians were first called cannibals because of what they'd supposedly do at their secret Lord's Supper meals. And even for those who know they're not literally cannibals, people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, this is one of their main objections to Christianity. The very idea that Jesus was slaughtered in our place, they think, speaks of a barbaric, bloodthirsty God, and the idea that someone 
could pay for someone else's sins is to them immoral and repulsive and repugnant. As it was in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus says, walk away from this, you have no life. Mm. So let me ask you, is the thought of you eating his flesh and drinking his blood something that you gag on? Something you'd rather walk away from? Something that frankly is just too much, too hard to swallow? Well, I want to take you through three movements in this chapter to set out in your leaflet, um, which, which will help you work out where we are. Each movement gives us a truth about Jesus to chew on. Each mouthful adds to the one before, and together they, they help us see why this big truth of eating Jesus you know, needs to be swallowed. So three cumulative mouthfuls to taste, eat, and inwardly digest. And here they are. Number one, Jesus Christ is the great prophet of God. Number two, Jesus Christ is the king of the cosmos. Thirdly, Jesus is the priest who sacrifices himself. That's the outline, prophet, king, and priest. They are the three truths to chew on and to take in for ourselves. The first mouthful comes out in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. This is a story very familiar. Okay, it's the only one of Jesus' miracles to be recorded by all four gospel writers. It's familiar and yet it's elusive because what's the point? The clues are in the details. If you've got your Bible open or on your phone, in verse one, John calls the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias. Why does he call it that? Tiberius was a Roman emperor. In setting the scene, John wants, wants us to conjure up sort of associations of worldly power. That's the backdrop to the miracle. Why? Why is that the backdrop? Then in verse two, we see a great multitude following Jesus into the desert because the signs they saw him perform. Now, when else in the Bible does a great multitude follow someone into the desert because of the signs they'd seen him do? Verse three has Jesus going up on a mountainside. Who does that remind you of? In verse four, John mentions the Jewish Passover feast is near. Passover, remember that. The feast to commemorate the night of the great exodus of God's people from Egypt. In verse six, we're told that the, the disciples were tested in the desert. What does that remind you of if you know your Bibles? In verse 10, even though women and children are present, it's only the men who are counted. So when is the major moment in Israel's history when women and children are present, but only the men are counted? John has given us lots and lots of hints. And Jesus wants us to get it. He sets this up to teach his disciples. That's why there's 12 basketfuls left over that are picked up, one for each of the disciples, so that each understands as they hold their leftover basket that Jesus has just done for them what God did for Israel in the time of Moses. He has provided bread from heaven. And all the echoes of the Exodus have been recalled to make the point that Jesus is like a new Moses and God is moving again to achieve a new redemption for his people. 
And this beats any worldly power, be they the Roman Emperor Tiberius in Jesus' day or Pharaoh of Egypt in the time of Moses. With Jesus is coming one who is greater than Moses. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. And he did in Deuteronomy 18. Greatest, Moses, the greatest prophet ever, had written, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. The crowd begins to understand it's Jesus because in verse 14 they say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. What's the application of that first miracle? Well, if Jesus is the prophet, the obvious the one thing that we must do is listen to him. That's what you do with a prophet. But they didn't. Instead, in verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They said he was a prophet, but they didn't sit and listen to him. Instead, they tried to squeeze him into their own mold, a king to overthrow the Romans. They didn't listen to him. Could we do that? Could we fail to listen to him because what he says might be offensive to us? We must listen to him if he's the prophet from God that Moses spoke about. That's what you do with a prophet. You listen to him, right? So here's the first mouthful to chew on. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. He's leading them to a greater salvation. Whoa, okay. Now that we're chewing on that morsel, we're still left hanging with a question about Jesus' kingship. The angels, we remember at Christmas time, told us that the one coming would be king. He would sit on David's throne, and it, Jesus here refuses to be made king by force. So we think, well, what's going on? Here's the second morsel to taste and to swallow. The story of Jesus walking across the water, and we skipped over that in the readings, but it's there. Now, once again, the setting is very important. John describes the Lake of Galilee as the sea. And to the Jews, the sea, with its unpredictable storms, was a symbol of chaos and evil, something dangerous, untamable, could easily take your life. And every fisherman knew that. Added to the sea, which was now surging into a storm, it's dark, another symbol of danger and evil. Bad things happen in the night. The light of the sun at the dawn brings hope, doesn't it? So here are Jesus' disciples. They're rowing, they're straining at the oars. They're at it until about 3 a.m. They're physically exhausted. They're in fear of their lives. And then three miles from shore, that's a long way, they see Jesus walking on the lake towards them. They are terrified, but he speaks to them and he says, it's I, don't be afraid. And we think, oh, well, that's nice. That'll, that'll put their fears at rest but we miss it because literally Jesus' words are, I am, I am. That's the, the name in the Hebrew that is sounded as Yahweh, which we translate Lord or Jehovah. It's the name of God himself. This is far stronger than it's me. Jesus here breaks their categories apart and he says, I am, don't be afraid. What he's saying is that he's, the Lord God Yahweh in human form. And we can see from the miracles what kind of king he is. And I say miracles because there are two. 
There's the walking on the water, that's the first. Jesus is the king of all creation, the king of the cosmos. So much bigger, isn't it, than a national king who will lead an army. He walks across the wind and the waves. And then there's the second miracle, when they immediately arrive at the other side of the lake. And that's amazing. They had been three miles out. Suddenly they're there. Some people explain it away by saying Jesus must have been near the shore or was walking on a sandbar. John will have none of it because the disciples, in the way that it's told, are as surprised at themselves suddenly arriving at the shore as that Jesus was walking on the water. They were there, they were the eyewitnesses and both blew their minds apart. They may have been thick on some things but they knew the Sea of Galilee this was a miracle. Explaining it away as Jesus walking on a sandbank used to fall into the error of the Jewish crowd, which is to try and make Jesus in our own mold, ordinary, non-miraculous, something tameable. So the miracles stand, but what do they show? Well, here's the morsel. They show that Creation that's unhinged, which threatens our lives, the stormy waves, the distance from the shore, creation unhinged is no problem for Jesus, who is the king over creation. He's the king of the cosmos. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that nothing physical can kill believers in Jesus, of course. But what it does force us to rethink um, about is whether we need to be worried about such things. Um, the kids sometimes sing, be strong and courageous, do not fear the fire, do not fear the... And it, part of me, whenever I sing that, says, but these things are really dangerous, shouldn't you f be afraid of them? And I think Colin Buchanan, who wrote the song, understands this. Jesus is the king of the cosmos. These things are no problem to Jesus. His plans to save aren't gonna be derailed as something as small as a life-threatening situation. When we're in such a situation, his words to us are, I am, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, uh, make it real. So about 11 years ago, sitting here briefly for, for a brief period of time, was a couple named Chris and Anne Amos. Some of you may remember them. I had a bit to do with them down in the city too. Not long after they arrived uh, from Sydney, Anne took up a, they came because Anne was lecturing in um, the law faculty at uh, Adelaide Uni. She developed cancer and it quickly went through her frontal lobe, multiple modules and then into her spine. And despite prayer meetings, which I ran, um, and despite two operations and despite intensive chemotherapy and radiotherapy, the Lord took her. Three little kids and a husband left. And I went up with Mark Mitchell to attend her funeral uh, in Sydney and Chris, her husband, spoke, and he said publicly what he's also told me privately, both before and after. He'd said, you know, even though the Lord took Anne, Christ was the saviour of our souls, not just hers, but us, because at every point, in whatever mountain we had to climb, whatever valley we had to go through, Christ didn't just sustain our faith, he built it, he increased our love, he cared for us, he provided for all our needs, he taught us that he is sufficient in every step of the trial along the way. It was well with their soul when she died. 
and to them they heard Jesus speak the words, I am, don't be afraid. They tasted that truth of Jesus' kingship. They chewed it over, they swallowed it, and they learned that the salvation that Jesus brought them was far, far greater than the one that they were praying for. Now that is worth bearing in mind if Jesus' kingship doesn't meet our expectations. Because of course Jesus' kingship exceeds our expectations. So the first mouthful is Jesus is the prophet from God, we're to listen to him. Second mouthful, Jesus is the king of the cosmos, we're to trust him, don't be afraid. And now the third mouthful, that he is our priest. And that's the conclusion that we come to, but to get there, we, we follow the crowd who've chased Jesus from where they've eaten and their tummies are full, across the other side of the lake to Capernaum, Jesus' hometown. And when he gets there, Jesus sees their motivation and effectively he says, look, you're interested in me because I put food in your bellies, not because of what the miracle pointed towards. He says, don't work for food that spoils, work for food that will bring eternal life. And then they say, well, what work do we have to do? It's a really good question, isn't it? What work does God say we have to do? It's worth listening to Jesus because his answer is not what I would have expected. I would have expected him to say, you know, care for the poor or, you know, be other person-centered, you know, or give your money away or something like that. Those things are good, but here's what he says. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's the work God requires of us, to believe in Jesus. Verse 47, it's he who believes who has eternal life. Now, Jesus, let me just talk about belief for a moment, or faith, because Jesus does say some things on this. If he said belief or faith is a work that we are required to do by God, what he's saying is that faith isn't magical. You know, some people say, oh, I don't have your faith. Like, you know, it's, it's something that's just been given to you, but not to me, you know. Um, it's a work, it's a normal human activity. When we get into our cars, we believe that they'll get us safely to work without the brakes failing and the engine exploding. When we get on public transport, we believe the driver will drive us where we need to safely and on time. When we go to a chemist or a doctor, we trust that the treatment or the drugs they give will work for our good, not our harm. When we call an electrician, we call them in faith because they have a bit, an ability to fix a problem which we know we ourselves can't fix. We all exercise faith all the time in normal human interaction with one another. And faith in Jesus in that respect is no different. It's a decision to put our trust in someone whom we have very good reason to think that he will deliver what he said he will and he'll deliver something that we can't do for ourselves. Faith's very normal and it's the work that God requires. So ahead of any other good works we might do, it's no good having lived a moral life without having believed in Jesus because to do so is to not deny that most basic of human responses that God requires, which is faith. Imagine um, relating to a doctor without any faith in him or her, right? Imagine if you turned up and you always questioned their judgment and you related to them like uh, you knew better 
than them, even though they'd studied for years, and you told them how to diagnose uh, your illness and how to treat you, and Phil's saying, this has happened to me, right? And um, imagine, imagine if you stayed away when you got sick because you knew what you thought was best, you knew more than them, and then you held them to account for not coming to treat you. That would be disbelief, wouldn't it? Faith is the most basic of human requirements in us relating to one another. It's the minimum we need to do to relate rightly to another person. It's not magic, it's decency. And the reason why it's necessary in Jesus' case is because of who he is. They say, show us a miraculous sign so that we can believe you. Unbelievable! What has happened yesterday for them? Right? Um, they say, our forefathers ate manna in the desert. What just happened on the other side of the lake? It's like supernatural blindness. And then Jesus tells them patiently that it's not Moses who gives them the true bread from heaven. The miracle is a sign pointing to something greater, to the true bread from heaven. And that bread is not something you shove in your mouth, it's a person, it's a man who gives life to the world. Give us this bread, they say. So for the second time, Jesus says the truth about himself. I am, I am the bread of life. And he promises, he who comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And he stresses the need for us personally to respond, the need for each of us to come to him to believe in him. And it's open for everyone, whoever comes, whoever believes. His clear promise is that whoever comes to him will cease their spiritual hunger and their spiritual thirst because finally they will have found God. What a wonderful promise that is. What a wonderful promise for Australians. Uh, you know, Australia is full of people. We live for what we think will satisfy us, but mostly Australians aren't satisfied. Most of us can't even explain the nature of our hunger. And Jesus tells us not only the nature of our hunger, but who we can come to to be satisfied. He says we can come to him. Now maybe it's true for you that you've never let yourself come. Okay, you've come to church, but you haven't come to him. And there's this emptiness inside. Jesus says, come and taste of me and you'll never be hungry again. And that's his promise. And we think, well, if that is so wonderful, why don't more people believe? If Jesus is right, why don't the Jews who are standing in front of him just believe? If Jesus is right, why are people so blind as to see his miracles but still ask for a sign? Why will the number of Jesus' followers drastically shrink from a multitude of thousands to the 12, the small number of faithful followers? Well, here's the other misunderstanding about faith. The first misunderstanding was that it has nothing to do with us. It's kind of magic, <laughs> where in fact it's a normal human work. But the second misunderstanding is that faith only has to do with us, that it's only up to us and it's not up to God. See, the view that God has no part in our decision to follow Jesus, that's a mistake, but it's not true. Three times in the remaining verses, Jesus says that our decision to follow him, though it, yes, it was our decision, was first of all 
a decision of God's. And that we choose God only because he called us to himself. Now, I want you to see that this isn't John Calvin saying this. This is Jesus saying this. Okay, verse 37. The first time he says it, he says it positively. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He puts it positively for our encouragement because, you know, people's lack of belief can be pretty discouraging, can't it? It was discouraging for Jesus, but he reminds himself that everyone whom the Father decides to give to Jesus will come to him. And we need to take that encouragement when we think about the, you know, the work we do of trying to share our faith with other people. It can be pretty hard to keep going when there's little fruit and it seems that people are so hard towards God. And the temptation can be just to give up altogether. But Jesus' encouragement to himself and to us is that all that the Father gives him will come to him. And those who come, he's not going to drive away because it's the Father's will that Jesus should lose none of those that's been given to him. Okay. But alongside that, there's also a healthy realism in what Jesus says because what does it mean to come to him? What does it mean to believe in him? What does it mean to taste of the bread from heaven? And there's no getting around it. It means to accept deeply that Jesus is our priest like no other. Other priests offer animals as a sacrifice, but Jesus offered himself, his flesh and blood, as a sacrifice for our sins. He, he paid the penalty. His blood shed instead of ours. His flesh offered instead of ours. The priest sacrifices himself. It's a bloody image of self-butchery. And if that's not shocking enough, in verse 53, Jesus speaks of our own appropriating of his sacrifice in terms of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And if we say, well, that's very offensive, that offends our sensibilities, and that paints a barbaric image, Jesus says, guess what, that's totally necessary. He says, unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life in us because his flesh is real food, his blood is real drink. And if we eat his flesh and drink his blood, the promise is that we will have eternal life. Oh, what do we do? Now, there's no way we can literally eat Jesus' flesh or blood, for example, at the Lord's Supper, like we just did. When you ate that bit of bread, it was a bit of bread that you were consuming. And when you drank the juice, it it was juice or wine, okay, that you were consuming. It's not literally, concretely, body and blood. It's a metaphor. But its meaning is clear. What he's saying is, you've got to take his sacrifice into us. Um, we've got to accept it. We've got to taste it. We've got to chew on it. We've got to swallow it. We've got to digest it. We've got to feed on it in our souls. And if we don't, he's saying, you're eternally dead. We die our own death. But if we accept that he has died for us, if we feed on that truth, then we live. He promises resurrection from the dead and living forever. Well, it's no surprise that it's this idea which many people find the most offensive that Jesus teaches. To those who don't believe, this is repugnant, it's repulsive, it is revolting. 
And perhaps that's true for you. When Jesus said at verse 60, many of those who'd begun following Jesus said, this is a hard truth, who can accept it? And many grumbled and turned away because they found it so offensive. But Jesus didn't apologize, he didn't backtrack, he didn't issue a press statement. He knows we need to accept it. His is the only sacrifice which can save and if we don't accept it, we're still in our sins. But he knows it's offensive, it offends our sensibilities and more than that, it offends our pride. Which is why we need God to work in us if ever we're going to come to Christ. Look at verse 44. There Jesus says, guess what? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or verse 65, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Our hearts just are too full of selfish pride. We actually need God to supernaturally draw us to Jesus and without doing that, we would walk away. Which brings us to the crunch as it did for the 12 when Jesus at the end finally says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Do you? You know, if you walked away from Jesus, let's just think about that. Who else would you go to, really? I mean, would you just stay with yourself? As if you're the answer. Or Buddha. Did you know on his deathbed, Buddha was recorded by his followers as saying, I have not found the truth, I am still searching. Well, it was Peter of the 12 who said it straight. Where else have we to go when you alone have the words of eternal life? The reality is there's nowhere else to go. So if you haven't come to Christ, of course, come to him. And if you have come to him, then don't you walk away. He is the prophet Moses pointed to, the one we must listen to. He's the king of the cosmos. No obstacle is too big for him to, to, stop it, to stop him saving us. And he's the priest who gives his own body and blood as the real food that we can come and feed on and live. If you do, were to do all your studies of other religions and philosophers, no one else speaks like this. No one offers what Christ offers. He alone has words of eternal life. Amen. Father, gosh, what, what a meal you have delivered solid food for us to chew on and digest. But help us, when we get to the end, not to say, oh, I find this bit repulsive and move on, but help us to take it in and to accept him, his death, body and blood for us. And may each of us deeply rely on him and what he did at the cross because there alone is eternal life. Amen.